this morning. We just, it was kind of a paradigm shift for us when we realized that we could do this in different places in town and then be intentional about engaging those parts of town. So it systematically forces us to worship out loud in different places and it breaks the paradigm of the church being a building, which it's not. We're the church and wherever we get, the church is. So sometimes you have to work hard to break paradigms. That's something else that we're doing this morning. Regarding the message this morning, I want to start out by sharing with you that I'm, I have worked in my uh, adult uh, ministry to try and simplify the message. And as I was preparing for this morning, or simplify the gospel, as I was preparing for this morning's message, I was overwhelmed with this feeling that I want to clearly present the gospel this morning, and I want to cl- present it simply. And over the course of the week, in in finalizing the message, I realized that that in an effort to reduce the gospel to a bumper sticker, that we, we do damage to it. And that maybe the gospel clearly presented, properly presented, properly sown in the heart of a man or woman or child or young person, is that it, the effort shouldn't be to present it simply, but to present it fully and accurately. I think in an effort to simplify it, we, in some ways, reduce it and damage it, neuter it, and it becomes kind of a milk toast, flimsy thing, and it makes for milk toast, flimsy believers. So this morning, my burden in preparing for this week has been to present a robust gospel. I want to start out by sharing with you a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 7. In some ways, we've been in John for the, for the last almost four years, but in some ways, we've been reading someone else's story. We've been able to take it our direction just because we know the rest of the story. But in some ways, we've been reading a story about another people, and this is this people, Deuteronomy chapter 7 Verse 6, this is speaking of the nation of Israel. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That's not talking about you yet. It's talking about Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number, Israel. It wasn't because you were fancy and shiny and worthy. It wasn't because you're more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. Although John, the book of John has been working in this direction all the while, it's been focused on this people we just read about. This few insignificant people chosen among all peoples of the world to be God's chosen people. And this is the character of Christ's ministry for most of the book of John so far. Chapter 10, verse 5. Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Just insert Greenville in there. (laughs) 
Go nowhere among the Greenvilleites. Go nowhere among East Texas, North Texas, wherever we are. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's been a focus here where Jesus is orienting on the lost sheep of Israel. But things are changing in John in the verse that we're studying this morning. Here in the final days of his ministry, the last week of his life, there's a significant marker in his ministry. There have been little bitty glimpses where he's focused on a Gentile here and there, a Samaritan woman he sat by a well with her. A Canaanite woman sought him out. But after little glimpses and glimmers of hope and light for the non-Jew, for the Greenvilleite, here in this passage that we're climbing into this morning, the sun shines brightly on the non-Jew. Let's go to John chapter 12, beginning in verse 19. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem on Sunday, Palm Sunday, the last week of his life. The crowds have cheered for him. And here's how the Pharisees respond. They see these possibly as many as 100,000 people lining the road coming in to Jerusalem from the east. And the Pharisees turn to each other and says, say this. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It's a picture of the irony of the book of John. John uses it frequently, and it's ironic right here. As they're looking at these crowds cheering for Jesus, they're thinking that they're seeing the world going after him, and really the world going after him is here in the next verse. The next verse, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. There it is. There's the marker of the ministry. Here's where things are going to change. These are likely God-fearing Greeks that, are, that have come to Jerusalem to worship at Passover and just to personalize this, let's take out Greek and let's insert Greenvilleite. Or let's insert Gentile, because that's the point. A couple of non-Jews come to Jesus. These are the other sheep mentioned of John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. These other sheep he's talking about are embodied in these two Greek dudes. I gave them names, Stephanos and Thaddeus. I had to get on the web this morning and kind of find a couple Greek names. I want to see their faces. Stephanos and Thaddeus approach Jesus. These are the other sheep of John chapter 6. I must gather them also. So these Stephanos and Thaddeus come to Philip. Philip is also a Greek name and it may be why they came to Philip. They're thinking that they got a guy they can connect with and resonate with. And they say, hey Phil. Phil was from Bethsaida, Bethsaida in Galilee and they asked him, hey Phil, sir we wish to see Jesus. My version doesn't represent well exactly what happened. If you have the New American Standard, then that's a better representation. It says that they were asking him, sir, May we see Jesus. Hey, Phil, can we see Jesus? And they're not just saying optically, 
visually, I want to scope him out. Because everybody, hundreds of thousands of people can scope him out. The word used here for see is the same word that's used in John chapter 3, where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, how are you doing all these great tricks? And Jesus doesn't even answer him. He says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be reborn from above. That word there is the word see is the word know. So Stephanos and Thaddeus, they come to Phil and they say, hey, Phil, we want to know Jesus. Hey, Phil, Phil, over here, we want to see Jesus. Hey, we want to experience Jesus. They kept asking him over and over again. As I was envisioning, thinking about Stephanos and Thaddeus pestering Phil, I was thinking that's what a seeker looks like. So often Christ is presented as this pitiful suitor that's just trying to hustle around and win your heart. Please follow me. And then we're presented as the girl in school in, in like sixth grade whenever people start, well, when I was in sixth grade, you ask, hey, will you go with me? The place hard to get. Oh, no, I don't think so. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. So we're presented as the girl that plays hard to get. And Jesus is presented as the pitiful suitor. But this is what a seeker looks like. Hey, uh, Phil, excuse me. I want to know him. Phil, I want to experience him. Phil, let me at him. That's a seeker. That's the kind of people that I want to engage. This morning, what I've been praying about is that this morning there would be some Greeks here. There may be some Thaddeus says, I don't know how you pluralize Thaddeus. That I. There may be a Thaddeus here or a Stephanos who's here for the first time or has worshipped with his people before and said, I want to know that Jesus. I don't know how to do it. But I want to experience him. This message is going to speak to Thaddeus and Stephanos. I hope that all of us are really saying that every day. Let me add him. I want to know him. I want to experience him. So in verse 22, ordinary Phil, I call him ordinary because Phil doesn't make any good decisions on his own. He's always got to seek somebody else out. And here he proves it. Ordinary Phil went and told Andrew, Andrew, hey, some Greeks, Thaddeus and Stephanos, want to see Jesus. So Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. He doesn't say, hey, Thaddeus, hey, Stephanos, come on over here, man, let's hang out. This is an important turning point of the ministry. It's bigger than Jesus sitting and talking with Thaddeus and Stephanos. Jesus answered them, coming to him about Thaddeus and Stephanos, with this, these words. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Oh, that's so important. Keep your finger in John chapter 12 and flip over to John chapter 2, verse 4. I want you to appreciate the gravity of this moment. John chapter 2, verse 4. This is the beginning of Christ's ministry. He's at a wedding in Cana. His mom comes to him, Mary. He says, hey, they run out of wine. Can you take care of that? Can you do something? And here's how he responds. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Then in John chapter 4, verse 21, he's speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And there, she's asking him some questions about worship, and here's, here's what he says. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming 
when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Then in John chapter 5, verse 25, he says, an hour is coming. John chapter 5, verse 28, he says, an hour is coming. John chapter 7, verse 30, says they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8, verse 20. He's teaching in the treasury of the temple and no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But now here in John chapter 12, when Thaddeus and Stephanus come to him, there's the marker for the ministry. The hour's now here. The hour has come for him to be glorified. It's probably been four months or so ago. We took a little break away from John and went to the book of Exodus. We went there for a reason because we knew we were moving into these last chapters of John and that it was during the Passover season and we needed to dine and feast on the Passover. I'm so glad that we did that because I knew that the Passover would sneak up on us when we never expected it. And this is one of those occasions right here. Whenever God told the nation of Israel to prepare for the final plague of the of of uh, their exodus from Egypt. It's called the Passover. It's when the, the night when the destroyer passes overhead and he takes the firstborn of Egypt. This is after the other plagues, a darkness that could be felt. Locusts, hail. I mean, the nation of Israel has seen some brutal stuff happen to Egypt. And God says, okay, here, now you're going to prepare for the last plague. And this is going to be the high point of the plagues. And he tells them, he says, I want you to have a new calendar. It's going to be a new age. It's going to be the age of Yahweh, essentially. You're going to know me by my name. You're going to know me as Big D Deliverer because you're about to see it. He says, you're going to need a new calendar. And on the 10th day of that calendar, of that first month, I want you to ready yourself for the Passover. On that 10th day, I want you to go find an unblemished lamb, a male, a year old. And keep that unblemished lamb... I just see him running around the house. Them petting him, scratching him behind the ear. Keep him until the 14th day. Go get him on the 10th, and then for four days, I want you to hear his bleat. I want you to maybe even name him. Let the kids run around with him. Experience his life. Examine him and make sure he's unblemished. And then at twilight on the 14th, I want you to slit its throat. And I want you to take that blood from that animal and I want you to slather up those doorposts because that's your only hope to be protected from the destroyer. I was thinking about the time frame, Christ entering Jerusalem on Sunday. The nation of Israel and Jerusalem has Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday to examine their unblemished lamb. To listen to the bleat of his message to hear him teach in the temple to examine him is he really unblemished for it will be the morning of Friday that they nail him to a cross his glory hour is here then in verse 24 he explains what this glory hour is going to involve here's what's in store for this glory hour in chapter 12 of John, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the master illustrator. And here he uses the illustration of a grain of wheat, small, insignificant, dirty. Uh, It's not going to amount to much. This picture of a grain of wheat to represent him and what he's about to do reminds me of Isaiah chapter 53. Keep your finger in John chapter 12 and turn over to the book of Isaiah. It's on page 613 if you have one of those blue Bibles that we've passed out or if you have the English Standard Version. Most of the English Standard Versions have the same page numbers. I'm going to give you page numbers and help you move to these places where we're going this morning. Just think of a grain of wheat while you hear these words. For he grew up before him like a young plant. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. This look like a little old grain of wheat. Dirty. Insignificant. Simple. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. Little grain of wheat. No stately form or majesty. Not attractive. Despised. Just a grain of wheat. Not esteemed. As simple and nondescript as a little grain of wheat. Christ represents himself. But he says... Unless that grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. He says it remains alone because the reality is that Christ could have come. God the Son could have come, born of Mary and the Holy Spirit, ultimately. He could have lived a sinless life and gone on to be with the Father. But if He had not died, then they would have remained alone. There would be no fruit of the ministry Except that he die. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And if our sins are not paid for, are remitted for, we're not going to be with him. Unless that grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. Somebody has to bleed for us to go be with him. Seed has to fall into the earth and die. Jesus was buried in a borrowed grave belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. But it didn't end there because he bears much fruit as a result of that death and burial. When he vacated that tomb on a dewy Sunday morning, when he stepped out of that tomb, a crowd stepped out with him. And if you're in fellowship with Christ, You're in that crowd. You feel the dew on your feet as you step out there. As you see the fog and the mist. That's our resurrection too. The fruit of his ministry. The fruit of his death and his burial. 
stepped out that day. Ephesians chapter 2 gives us a picture of that. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived as the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, we were done. We were walking dead. We thought we're living, but without Christ, in fact, we are dead, reckoned dead. But then my favorite two words in the Bible, the next two words in verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ on that dewy Sunday morning. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him. He's talking about us, this fruit of that dying seed. He's talking about those who vacate that tomb with Him on that Sunday morning. I hope He's talking about you and me. Here's where things get challenging. Here's where I've been so burdened as I've prepared for this morning. I want to get this right. Not just this morning, but I want to get this right myself. What I'm, where we're about to go. How do we become the fruit of His ministry? How are we the fruit of His dying and buried seed and resurrected seed? I want to get that right, frankly, for my own sake. And I want to get that right because I'm shepherding a wife and some little kids sitting on the back row back there. I want to get it right as I'm sharing with them. Here's what it means to follow Him. Here's the robust gospel. I want to get it right as an elder of this church to present the robust gospel. Not the easy bumper sticker gospel, but the gospel that's represented in the pages of this book. Because eternity is a long time. And hell's going to be hot, I bet. Brimstone? Sulfur, fire, I pass. I want to get this right. So if you've been kind of just kind of ho-hum up to this point, oh, okay, that's kind of nifty. Uh, I hope he's close to being done. Pay attention right now. I want to be the fruit of that work. I want you to be the fruit of that work. I want lots of Greenville to be the fruit of that work. I'm begging for lots of Greenville. To be the fruit of that dying seed. Jesus has been talking about his hour and what he's about to do, but now he explains how we can be fruit of that work. The next verse, John chapter 12, verse 25. He says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What he's saying right here is that if we are to be fruit of his seed-dying ministry and resurrecting ministry, if we are to be fruit of that, we've got to hate life in this world. That's a strong word, hate. We're going to examine it in a minute. But here's what he's saying. If we love life in this world, we lose it. We think we're living now if we love life in this world. The reality is you don't get anything. So let's examine this, the life lover first. Let's examine the one that loses his life 
I want to know what this dude looks like. Because I want to be able to look in the mirror. I want to be able to hold my Bible up and say, am I this dude? As I'm shepherding this people, as I'm shepherding my family, I want to look at us and say, are we this people? The one who loves life. The word in the original language is actually an active participle. Okay, don't tune me out there. It means it's a verbal noun. I could rephrase this, this one who loves his life, the one who loses it as the life-loving one with an I-N-G. That's a verbal noun. The life-loving one is also the one that loses life. The one that's characterized by almost like the picture of squeezing a banana, like banana is life. Like I'm going to squeeze all that I can out of life. I'm every sensual pleasure, every comfort that I can possibly gain, all the stuff that I can gather. That person, like a banana, the harder you squeeze a banana, the less you have of that banana. The life-loving one is also the life-losing one. Here's a picture. Turn to Luke chapter 17. Page 876, Luke chapter 17. I hope you want to see what this guy looks like. I do. Youth, I hope you're not tuned out this morning. I hope you're tuned into this. Young people, just because you're a kid don't mean you have to pay, doesn't mean you don't have to pay attention. I hope you're getting this. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's talking about their times. He's talking about our times. Listen to what he says. He says to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's the hour. First the hour's got to happen. The cross. And then verse 26. Just as it is written in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah climbed on the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Listen to those things they were doing. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage. Those are good things, right? (laughs) What's wrong with that? Well, let's see what happens next. Verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Hear these words. Remember Lot's wife. When I was a kid, hearing the story of Lot, and his wife, and them leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot's wife looking back, all they did was say, hey, don't look back. I I always laughed at her, like, man, how stupid could you be? They told you not to look back. And she turned into a a pillar of salt. 
Now, I don't know if she actually looked like a column or if she looked like Lot's wife like that. I don't know which. But I always laughed at it as, as a kid, and I thought, boy, you're a chump, Lot's wife. But as I'm studying this now, I'm realizing that, ooh, I might look like Lot's wife. Essentially, what Lot's wife was guilty of was being characterized by eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. That's who she was. That's what she did in Sodom. And when they had to leave, she, that's why she looks back. I can't leave that. That's my life. That's all that I am. But look at the next verse. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. The reality is life loving is an inability to turn your back on everything in pursuing Him. There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking and marrying and burying and building a house and selling a, something and buying something. But if that's all you're about, if that's what characterizes your life, commerce and marrying, and you're not a Christ lover, a Christ adorer, if you're not one of those guys that people say at work, man, that dude's consumed with Jesus then you may be Lot's wife. I used to laugh at her, but now I'm looking at her going, Ugh. I wonder if that's me. Am I characterized by standing up on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and just preaching, but really I'm just about marrying and burying and buying and selling? Is that all I am? Life-loving is an inability to turn your back on everything in pursuing Him. Here's the better approach. You got to eat, right? Eat in faith. You got to drink, right? Drink enjoying your Lord. As you sit and you're marrying, we got some people here preparing to be married or to marry someone else, to marry a family member. As you're sitting there and you're in that ceremony or someone who's been married recently, as you're sitting in that ceremony, envision the marriage between God and His people. Enjoy Christ in that moment. You can still do all those things, but be characterized by that freak that's consumed with that Jesus as you're eating and drinking and marrying and as you're buying and you're selling and you're planting and you're building. You're a Jesus lover. The life lover, that's all they are. There's another picture, Luke chapter 18, just probably on the same page in your Bibles. There's another picture of loving life so that you lose it. A ruler comes to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. <laughs> Liar. He wrote lying right there. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, he got to the thing that was really most important to this cat. He got to this thing that he loved more than Christ. He said, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when this life lover heard that, he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. 
And Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Life-loving. Now listen. This is, remember the life-lovers, the losing one also? The life-loser? Life-loving is loving anything more than Christ. Ooh, now that, that's hard to fit on a bumper sticker. I haven't seen that on a bumper sticker. When you're sharing the gospel with somebody, I mean, you go come across that strong, they might not pray the sinner's prayer. Heaven forbid. That's the robust gospel. The one that's going to lose it is the one that loves anything more than they love Jesus. Here's another picture, Mark chapter 8. Just a few pages before on 844. Here's another picture of life-loving, of being a life-loving one. Mark chapter 8, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There's that same theme, so we know this is connected to the verse that we're studying in John 12. We're not making a leap. Listen to what he says next. He really expounds on that truth. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me, here's what I want you to pay attention to, the life lover is ashamed of Christ. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. Life loving is being ashamed of Jesus. If you're afraid to worship Christ out loud at L3 in the warehouse, if you're afraid to worship Christ out loud, I don't know, in the, in the bull ring, that's life loving. And that's also life losing. That's characteristic of the life loser, the one that's afraid to open his mouth at the construction site about his Savior because he's ashamed. I wouldn't want anybody to make fun of me or laugh at me. Mock me. That's the life loser. Now listen, I'm making, I'm making that person look really small. I'm guilty. Is there anybody in here that's not guilty of that? That's hard to fit on a bumper sticker. Now let's look at life hating. Let's look at the life hater that will have his life kept and preserved. And he's actually going to get it upgraded to eternal life. He's going to get an upgrade at the end. Let's look at this guy. This is the guy that I want to be. First of all, this too is an active participle. It's the life-hating one. I like that. That I-N-G. Because it says this is how this guy's characterized. He's characterized by hating life in this world. Not just when he's in crisis. (laughs) Not just when things are bad. But he's characterized by living in that place of hating life in this world. Something you'll hear a lot from that sort of person is, come, Lord Jesus, come. Ooh, I'm ready for you to come back, Jesus. Ooh, I'm eager to be home with you, Jesus. The life-hating one. This is the one that his life is preserved and then eventually upgraded to eternal life. Let's look at this guy, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I don't have a page number for you, but I will in a minute. 
verse 29. Hey, let me tell you also while you're turning there, you might be like, man, we've looked at a lot of Scripture this morning. And this isn't short. You might think, man, I like those 15, 20-minute deals. You know, I was thinking the other day as I was preparing for this, I was like, man, this is going to be a thorough, not simple, a thorough presentation of the gospel. I was thinking, man, people go off to Dallas and spend all weekend listening to Donald Trump talk about how to get rich. All weekend listening to Donald Trump. (laughs) Give me a break. And that stuff's not going to matter at all in the end. That we can take some time to truly engage the gravity of what we're talking about here in life-loving and life-hating. So let's look at this life-hater. Here's some pictures. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, this is a picture of hating life in this world. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Woo! The life-hater has an eye-gouging, hand-hacking pursuit of holiness. The life-hater is really hurting in the pursuit of holiness. I've thought about this true work of sanctification. Man, it's hard. I've thought about preaching week by week messages like this, that when Paul tells Timothy, keep preaching the word, because there will come a time where they will no longer endure sound doctrine, that that word's appropriate because it's hard. The pursuit of holiness, sanctification, is an eye-gouging, hand-hacking pursuit of righteousness. It's a relentless pursuit. That's life-hating in this world. Here's another picture, Luke 14. Luke 14. (laughs) Verse 26. Listen to this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate. Now, is that a misprint? Listen. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. The brothers and sisters part might be kind of easy. But really, the hate. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life. He cannot. It doesn't say may not. Might not. He cannot be my disciple. That is a high call of life hating right there. Hating father, mother, brother, their own life. What that is, that's a picture of the cost of discipleship. And it's a picture of who do you love most? I know and I've heard from people and I see it in my wife. Is there possibly a stronger love than between mommy and child? There better be. Men, for you that just love your wife and you love her like so much that you die for her, man, that's good. But you better love Jesus more. Or you're a life lover. The one who's hating life in this world, as much as he may love his wife, he better. As much as he loves his children, compared to the love for Christ, it's almost as if you hate him. You don't hate him. But compared to that deep, 
hungry affection for Christ. It's almost as if you do. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Put that on a bumper sticker. That just wouldn't work. That's why you need a preacher. How will they know unless the word is preached? That's why the word, you can't do it on a bumper sticker. And you can't do it in five minutes. And you can't do it at the end of a worship service when somebody walks down an aisle on the front row. I'm going to address that in a moment. One more picture of life hating. Revelation chapter 12. Verse 11, this is the life hater, the one that, remember, gets the upgrade. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. I'm in Romans, that's a bad, bad idea. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. I'll give you a page number. 1035. This is speaking of the ones that conquer Satan. Listen how they conquer Satan. Listen to this. This is the Nikao, the overcomers of the book of Revelation. This is who we're supposed to be. Okay, listen. And they have conquered him, that's speaking of Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their own lives even unto death. Is there anything that we love more than self-preservation? Protecting ourselves? There better be something we love even more than that. Otherwise, we're a life lover. That's a robust gospel. You can't explain that in five minutes. That's got to be a journey of sowing that into someone's heart. That may be the first time that you're hearing this. You may have been in life in, in church your whole life, and you're like, hearing, uh, you mean I'm a life loser unless I'm like this? Whoa. Now that's a robust picture of belief. The life hater keeps it and gets an upgrade. The life loser, excuse me, the life lover loses it altogether. Go back to John 12. John 12, the next verse. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must... Follow me. Okay, this is really amplifying on what happens to the fruit of his ministry. This is characteristic of those who are being saved. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So far, if we're to be fruit of his dying seed ministry, then we've got to hate life in this world. Okay, it's right there. It's in black and white and red. Now he amplifies that to what that actually means. It seems a couple verses before when he was talking about himself being that dead seed or that seed that's got to fall to the earth and go into the earth and die. He wasn't just talking about himself. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about the people of God that we die also. The fruit of his ministry will fall to the ground and into the ground and die with him. We will follow him. If he might serve me, he's going to follow me. And where did he go? He went to a cross. That's our lot. That's your lot. If you want to follow him, you got to die. You got to pick up a cross, and you don't just die once. 
You die daily. Turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If you think that this gospel that you're hearing this morning is just a whole lot more robust than the one that you heard before, if you've heard one before that says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead and he's Lord, then you'll be saved. And, I, and you said, Jesus is Lord. You just opened your mouth and you said it. And you thought, okay. And my preacher, he signed the front of my Bible. I took a short dip in a cool pool. Me and God were square. If you think this is too aggressive for you, this gospel... That I've added something to the gospel? Listen to these words. Luke chapter 9 verse 23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Let him die daily and follow me. And if you think there's not a connection, look at the next verse. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's all over these Gospels. That same theme. I don't have three happy, easy steps to dying for Christ. <laughs> I don't have a quick self-help plan for you. I can offer you a journey, though. If you've been here before, or maybe you're here for the first time, you're about to see that we don't have altar calls after a worship service. If you've been here before, you might wonder, well, why don't you do that? We don't do that because an altar call won't do justice to the, what needs to be developed in the heart of a believer, the true cost of discipleship. Here's what it means to follow him. You have to die. You can't do that on the front row during just as I am. You can't do that. It's a journey, and it takes sowing in the heart of, of man and sowing in the heart of a Thaddeus and Stephanos. You can't do it in five minutes. An altar call just doesn't do justice. We can scare up. Trust me, Scott and I could do this. I bet we could do this. We could scare up an emotional experience for you. I could find some touching stories on email, on the internet. I could read some sweet poems. We could get real emotional. We could sing just as I am. Eight, nine verses. And we could talk about the movement of the Spirit. It's just so overwhelming. Let's have another verse. And you could make a commitment and walk an aisle because you're in a place of crisis in your life and you could say it with your mouth. I could sit on the front row and say, all you have to do is say it. Just say Jesus is Lord. And you could say it. And I could sign the front of your Bible. And you could hang out with us for about three months. And then you could go right back into the world and think you're square with God. Folks, that's most of Greenville. That's our field. And the reality is we've got to present the whole seed. Is it true that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved? Yes. Is it true that if you believe in Him, you will be saved? Yes. But let's amplify, confess, and believe with John chapter 12. Let's define, confess, and believe with you got to die daily. You got to be a hating one in this world. Let's amplify it with the full, the whole gospel. Those passages are completely true. If you confess with your mouth, 
that Jesus is Lord. It's in Romans. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's completely true. Another one that's completely true, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Those are completely true, but they don't reveal the truth completely. You understand the difference? Anybody can say, Jesus is Lord. In fact, there'll be a lot of this said, I called you Lord, Lord. And he said, I never knew you. That's why I'm so burdened about this message this morning. Because the people of God, I feel like Greenville, maybe, is getting the true robust seed sown in the heart of some people in Greenville. I feel like in some ways I'm hearing it for the first time. It's a big, fat, heavy seed. And I'm looking for my cross. And I'm looking at Lot's wife and going, "Mm, I hope that's not me. In an emotional moment, you can say with your mouth, just like this, Jesus is Lord. And not even mean it. In an emotional moment of crisis, you can say, I believe in him. I'll pray the sinner's prayer. And all the while, you're thinking about belief like, I believe I'm going to have lunch. We've got to use these sort of passages to add in for a robust understanding of what it means to follow Christ. It means your death. So rather than a hard press for a hasty decision and a trip down an aisle, I opt for taking time. The elders opt for taking time. The teachers in this church opt for taking time to make disciples of you, not converts. Disciples. That means walking with you. Jesus walked with his disciples for three years. I'd rather take our time and do it right. And sow the full seed into your heart. The full seed that means that you, your passions, your pursuits, you as captain of your soul are crucified and buried. Or you'll not get an upgrade. Period. I've wondered and I've prayed for some pesky Greeks. I've wondered this morning, are there going to be any Stephanos and Thaddeus here? Am I a Stephanos and Thaddeus? Say, hey, Phil, let me see him. Let me know him. Let me experience him. I want him. I've wondered if there are any pesky Greeks here today and if anyone who's realized maybe that they've cheered for Jesus like the rest of Jerusalem did for all the wrong reasons. Ha, Hosanna. You're going to save me from all my temporal problems. That's what they did. I wondered if this morning some people have maybe been in church their whole life are like, dude, I've never cried out to him properly. I've never seen this picture of me dying. He's kind of been an add-on. And I'm kind of on a sin management program, and I am convicted about that. I've wondered this morning if there would be any Stephanos and Thaddeus here. And I'll offer this to you. If you want to die with Christ, here's where to begin. Confess your sinfulness to Him. 
your complete bankruptcy. Confess your sin. That's got to be where you start. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Embrace it. Secondly, turn from your sinfulness. Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching. He says, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. There's no remission of sins for you if you don't repent. I'm not just talking about remorse either. The difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is like, man, my life is a wreck. But I'm not going to do anything about it. In fact, I want Jesus to come in here and just kind of improve upon it. (laughs) I just want that kind of improved model. I don't want the dying model. I just want the improving. Just kind of make things better for me. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. And repentance says, I'm walking away from that life. I'm turning the other direction. I confess my sinfulness, and I turn from my sinfulness, and I turn to Christ as the only saving work. There's the potential, as you've heard these things this morning, to go, ooh, yeah, that could kind of sound like a works-driven gospel if you're not careful. The fact is, we are only saved by a work that's completely outside of ourselves on the cross and in that empty tomb. That's how we're saved. And what's characteristic of those who are truly being saved is that we hate life in this world. It's characteristic of true believers like wool is characteristic to a sheep. Confess your sinfulness. Turn from your sinfulness. Turn to Christ. Cast yourself at His feet and surrender. It's not like a deal. You don't make a deal with it. You surrender. Beg Him to bathe you in the blood that He shed on Calvary. That sin-washing detergent, the only thing that will cover your sin. Bathe Him, or beg Him to bathe you in that blood. And then cling to the people of God. Confess your sinfulness. Turn from your sinfulness. Turn to Christ. And then cling to the people of God. Eating His Word together. That's what we're doing this morning. Eating His Word together. Worshiping together. Being members of one another together. Hating life together in this world. Do all those things until you take your last breath. That's what it means to be saved. Until you take your last breath. This morning it's appropriate that we take the Lord's Supper. Whoever's involved in that, let's go ahead and uh, come on up here. Purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remember what Christ did. It's something that it's a privilege for the people of God to participate in. I want to qualify what we're about to do and give you some, some insight into who should participate in this. If you are believing on Christ then let's take the Lord's Supper together. If you're not, don't take it. As you take this into your mouth, and then you swallow and it goes into your stomach, that's a picture of consummation, that you and Christ have consummated your relationship. 
That's an image and a picture of you literally dining on Christ. So as we do this in these next couple of minutes, the Lord's Supper together, as we take this together, if you're not believing on Christ, don't take this cup. If maybe as I was preaching this morning, you're like, dude, I'm ready to die. Dude, I'm ready to hate life in this world. That sounds hard, but I'm ready to do it. I want that, Jesus. Then you take it with us. Enjoy it with us as maybe your first Lord's Supper. Read from Luke chapter 22. As then came the day of the unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired. That's the same word for lust, epithumio. Jesus says, earnestly, like a visceral desire to eat with the disciples, to eat with us right now. This is an important moment. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood.